Amen. Good morning, Orchardville Church. Wow. So good to have each and every one of you joining with us this morning on the last Sunday before Thanksgiving. Hard to believe that that is here already. Before we get too far, let me remind you to, to check in on social media. That's always a, just a great thing to do as we get the, the service up and running and going uh, that you let people know this is where you start your week. This is where you start your Sunday morning with God's people plugged into what God is doing in your life. And we want other people to hear what God has to say. So log into social media, share our live video feed on our Facebook page. And then once you've done that, open your Bible to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. So we have been focusing on this very short uh, and important book of the New Testament, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, the Philippians that were there. And as we've mentioned several times, um, this little letter, this short book, uh, probably is the most joyful of all of the writings in the New Testament. Uh, as a reminder, Paul, in this very short epistle, uh, uses the word joy or rejoicing and references thankfulness over 16 different times. Now, that's sort of important because, you know, it's, it's easy when somebody uh, encourages you not to worry about money and they have all the money that they could want for, Right. Uh, it's like, oh, don't worry about money. Well, yeah, dude, you've got thousands and thousands in the bank. So yeah, it's easy for you to say that. Or it's easy for somebody to say, don't worry about it when their life seems to be, uh, you know, working like a charm. But that's not what's going on here with Paul. See, just to remind you, Paul is writing this letter not while he is flush with everything that he could possibly hope for in life, not while he is living a charmed life, Paul is writing this while imprisoned and waiting for trial in Rome. And so while you might dismiss out of hand when somebody tells you not to worry about money and they got more than they can use, or when somebody tells you, hey, don't worry, you know, everything's going to be okay when their life seems to be running like, a, you know, like it's on rails somewhere, you cannot dismiss what Paul is saying. Because Paul is going through an incredibly difficult season in his life. And in the middle of all that, he keeps telling the Philippians to rejoice, to have joy. And he begins at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. Now, we've talked about that word, therefore, before. What's it there for? When you see therefore, it means that what the person is about to say has something to do with what they've already said. So I want to make sure we go back and we find out what in the world is Paul referring to as he begins to launch into this last piece of his letter to the Philippians. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your love, which is unconditional. God, we thank you for your grace, which is extravagant. And God, as, as we begin to move toward the week of Thanksgiving, I pray that this message of joy and rejoicing and thanksgiving will just penetrate deep into each and every one of our souls, that we will truly embrace the message of Paul not only to the Philippians, but Lord, to us 2,000 years later. So God, have your way in every life, in every heart. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. All right. So Paul says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, what is the therefore there for? Well, in the previous chapter, in chapter three, last week, we talked about a little bit about couple of really important things where Paul was talking about pressing on, right? Forgetting the things which are behind and pressing on toward what's ahead. And, and you may recall that one of the things that I, I shared with you last week as a congregation is that 
you can't focus or, or rather you can't forget what's behind until you focus on what's ahead. Right. As long as as our our distraction and our, our, our attention keeps going back toward what's behind us, the failures, the disappointments, whatever it may be, we can't actually leave it behind until we turn our attention toward what is ahead. And that's important because at the very end of chapter three, and we didn't talk about this a lot last week, but at the end of chapter three, uh, in verse 20, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, I don't care what is going on in your life. You've got one overriding joyful thing to look forward to and that is that if you belong to Jesus Christ if you have bowed your heart and your knee and received the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation then you are now a citizen of heaven and you have that to look forward to which overrides everything else that may be behind you man is that the best we got this morning it's, this is Thanksgiving week, right? I mean, we are talking about being thankful this week, are we not? Yes. All right, so let me, let me try that again. Paul says that what God is, has waiting for us as citizens of heaven is way better than anything that we've got behind us. Oh, that is much better. And church, God is much more pleased with that response. See, this is all about being thankful. This is why Paul keeps talking about this over and over and over and over again. He says, remember at the start of chapter three, I don't get tired of saying this because it's for who's good. Who's good did he say it was for? For your good. It's for your good to learn how to be rejoicing and thankful all the time. And so Paul is saying that because we are citizens of heaven and that is so much to look forward to, he's gonna tell us in this final little piece of this letter how to live between here and there. How, how to have the joy that comes through thanksgiving and then to, to uh, live in the peace that comes through that process. So Paul is going to address several things in this last segment that lead to that peace that we can enjoy as part of the rejoicing and thanksgiving process and in verse 1 of chapter 4 he gives us the very first part of that he says so stand fast in the Lord stand fast in the Lord so the very first step to peace enjoying the peace of God that comes through thanksgiving and joy is standing fast in the Lord now I, I don't know if you watch a lot of uh, movies that involve battle scenes. I particularly enjoy those. Uh, I, I like war movies. And, and even I like, you know, old school movies in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages where you got kings that are riding up and down the, the battlefront. Right. You can picture that in your mind. Right. Right, so you got all these, all these warriors that are standing in a line on the opposite side of the field. There's another army over there and you've got the guy, the king on the horse riding up and down the line and going, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. Guys, that's exactly what Paul is saying in this first verse when he says, standing fast, stand fast in the Lord. It's a military picture of us linking arms together, standing fast against the approach and the, and the offense of the world and Satan as he works against the church. And if you've ever watched those movies, you know that when the line gets broken, then it puts everything else potentially in danger, right? You have to hold the line. And church, there's an old saying that we're all familiar with, a chain is only as strong as what? It's weakest link. And church, 
Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in Philippi saying, you must do this together. You must stand fast. Don't be weak on this thing. And listen, they were facing, he'd already written that they were facing opposition, which he'd already mentioned in the previous chapters. Uh, they were facing uh, bad teaching that was getting them off track. Uh, they were facing persecution. They were facing many different things. And Paul was saying, no matter what goes on, no matter what you're up against, hold the line, stand fast. You must link arms. You must do this together because the cause of Christ demands it and the cause of the gospel needs it. Hold the line, stand fast. And then he, he says to stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. What, is, what does that mean? Well, we're gonna talk a little bit more about this when we get down to these verses, but just jump down to verse eight and nine for a second. When he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever the things are, go are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. In the Lord, listen, we pursue all sorts of things that have absolutely nothing to do with the Lord. And Paul is saying, stand fast, hold the line in the Lord. And listen, to do that, you've got to stay centered in the Lord. Our churches, far too often, we're centered in a whole bunch of other things other than the Lord. And Satan, who understands that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, he will attack in that point of vulnerability within the context of the church. He can break the line there. And when he does, the church begins to pay a price. In fact, I, I think that's a little bit of what the church in Philippi was experiencing because let's look at the next two verses, verses two and three. He says, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, these whose names are in the book of life. So here's two women in the church that are at odds. Now, I, when, when the church in the New Testament, uh, when those churches received a letter from one of the apostles, uh, it was standard pr practice that they would all gather and then somebody would stand up and read it out loud. Now, I have no idea what the reaction is, was of these two women to hear their names being called out by Paul in a letter for everybody to hear. It might have been a little shocking. It might have been a little humbling. It might have been a little angering. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what their reaction was. But it was obviously important enough that Paul needed to address it even from a, a, a incarceration uh, in Rome. Listen, there's two women in the church. They've become a weak link the, 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 the work of Satan has penetrated into the church and you've got two women now who are at odds with each other and it is affecting the church. And you know what's, what's really interesting is that Paul doesn't really say what they're arguing about. Now, do you think he knew? Well, of course he knew. He had, he'd, he'd received information. Paul knew, but he doesn't even address what, what's their disagreement? Was it, was it theology? Was it preference? Was, was it something in the operation of the church? Paul doesn't say. Why doesn't Paul say? I mean, why doesn't he just address directly what their issue is? You know why I think church? Because the issue wasn't the issue. The issue was they weren't in unity. 
That's the issue. What's the old saying? Major on the major and minor on the what? Minor. Keep the main thing the main thing, church. And Paul realized that whatever it was that they were disagreeing about was a minor thing. You know what the major thing is? Unity in the church. Because when the church doesn't have unity, the church becomes ineffective. And so Paul really didn't didn't feel the need to address what it was that was going on. What needs to be addressed is they need to get unified. They need to become in harmony with each other because when, when there's a lack of harmony, when there's disunity internally, there will be no victory externally for the church. And church, anytime you think that a church can talk about things that can, can be at odds with each other inside the church and it stays in the church, you're fooling yourself, right? There's no way that that doesn't get outside the wall for four walls of the church. I don't care if it's this church or any other church. If there is disunity in the church, it will find a way to leak into the community. And whose testimony is damaged when that happens? The churches. And then by default, whose testimony is damaged? God's. You understand why this is such a big deal, church? Paul was not willing to sacrifice the, the honor and glory and the reputation of God because it will not stay inside the church. When there's disunity, it will leak into the community outside the church and it will bring dishonor and shame on the name of God. So Paul calls on these two women to find peace with one another and get their minds together in the Lord. So we go back to that phrase again, in the Lord. I gotta tell you this morning that I think agreeing on the gospel is one of the most fundamental foundational forms of unity that any of us can know or experience. Because it, it brings people of all sorts of different mindsets, all sorts of different life experiences and backgrounds, uh, into one place where we agree that the salvation of Jesus Christ supersedes it all. Now, let's just be honest. We're all unique individuals. We all have our own way of viewing life, of filtering life, of making choices and decisions. And some of us got saved as children. Some of us got saved as adults. I... I, I just I appreciated hearing Justine's a uh, little bit of testimony during during worship time, and she got saved as as a young adult. Many people get saved in their adulthood, and when you do, you bring all that life experience into the church, and that's a lot of life experience that's got to find out how to be redeemed, right? I mean, we get, we get saved by grace, but there's a whole lot of experience and thinking that's got to get transformed and redeemed by the blood of Christ, and that's a process. But I want to I share this morning a little example of what I think is so important about the unity of, of the gospel. All right, so um, see, I'm going to ask uh, George and, and Mark to come up here. Uh, Andy, you, you come up here because you're close. Um, and uh, come on up and help me out. All right, so everybody comes to church with a different set of experiences, a different way of thinking, uh, different preferences. And uh, we're just going to let these four different bottles of, of Gatorade represent the different things that, that matter to us. All right? And people come into church uh, with different ideas of what's important. You know, some people, and this is especially true among the millennial generation, there's this idea of social justice. Some of you are familiar with that term. If you're not, then I'm just, I'm not going to tell you that you're old, but, you know, if the slipper fits. Um, so, 
Social justice is a huge thing in millennials. And there are a lot of millennials that come, that maybe they get saved or they come into the church and social justice is, man, that's my cause. That's my cause. There's other people that come into the church and they've got, they've got young children. And so children's ministry, man, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing we got to put all of our time and energy and effort into. Or there might be some, some people that come into the church and they go, well, you know, hey, the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And it is, amen. And so because of that, you know, we, we, gotta, we gotta talk about political things all the time. All right, now here's the thing. Do those things matter? Yes, of course they do. All right. But now I want you guys to kind of gather around this picture here. Leave the top on, and I want you to turn them upside down uh, with the top on and start pouring them into this pitcher. Go ahead and do that with the top on. How come ain't nothing coming out? No hole in it. Ain't no hole in it, and the top is on, right? It's a stupid question. <laughs> Except it's not. You know, because what that is, that's a picture of us coming to church with our own agenda, coming to church with our own idea of what, what should be the most important thing, and we're closed off to what anybody else has to say. And when we're closed off to what anybody else has to say, then nothing of what we have to say or do gets influenced by anybody else. Oh yeah, yeah, we still, we're still pure blue, still pure blue. I got my way of thinking and it hasn't been contaminated by anybody else, right? But when I won't allow my stuff to be influenced by anybody else's, guess who else I'm closed off to? When I come to the church and I won't let anybody else's theology or, 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 or uh, input influence me because I don't want to mess up my own thing, not only am I closed off to them, I'm closed off to God. All right? But now we'll take the tops off. All right, and uh, let's, let's not make a mess, okay? Um, so start pouring those in. All right, so when we take the top off and we start exposing ourselves to each other's ideas, each other's passions, each other's thoughts, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, that's good. <laughs> then we wind up with something completely and totally different. And here's, here's what happens. Is God through the Holy Spirit and through the power of the gospel starts saying, you know what, there's room for what matters to you. 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 But it must be filtered into the one common element that makes us all unified, and that is the cause of Christ. The gospel is the only thing that can save a soul and change a life. Thanks, guys. You guys can sit down. Now, as far as this particular experiment, I don't even want to try that, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is a great, great analogy because this probably tastes terrible, but you get the idea, right? The gospel is this funnel that takes all of our different preferences, all of our different experiences, all of our different agendas, and says there's room for them all, but they must filter and come into compliance with the intent of the gospel, and that is to raise the banner of Christ as the only way to God. Everything else, church, everything else is secondary. I'll try that again. Everything else is secondary. <laughs> Starting a new Gatorade flavor. No idea what it is, but. <laughs> I 
Paul says to these women and to the church there, let them get on the same page in the Lord. What is the same page in the Lord? That the most important thing we do together is raising the banner of Jesus Christ and everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Don't let Satan penetrate your line of defenses by working on weak links and raising agendas. Get those two ladies on the same page that says the gospel is the biggest reason that we're here. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Do you think that Paul is trying to make a point that we ought to rejoice? You just get that idea. Maybe it's just a little bit important to him. Paul was, as a reminder, he's, he's speaking and writing to them from prison. And while he was there in chapter one, you may or may not remember this, but in chapter one, he was saying, hey, there's some people out there um, that are preaching the gospel. And some are doing it for the right reasons and the right motives, and some are trying to make me feel bad about being in here, so their motives are all whacked out and they're all wrong. But they're actually preaching the gospel. Now, they weren't preaching a false theology because he would have always mentioned that. Paul never hesitated to call out false teaching, but that's not what was going on. They were actually preaching the gospel, but with a bad heart, with a bad motive. But Paul's like, hey, I don't care. I don't care. I'm gonna rejoice even if they think that they're making me feel bad, I'm not going to feel bad because the gospel is going out. I'm going to share a story. I know I've shared it here once before, and I don't always like to repeat myself, but this is such a fun story and such a good story, and I think it's so helpful to us that I'm going to do it again. So there was a guy uh, that had two, two children, two boys. They were completely opposite of each other, Right? One was a constant complainer and uh, just griped about everything. Nothing ever, ever, ever made him happy. The other was a consummate optimist. I mean, he was excited all the time. And so he decided one year for Christmas, he was going to do something that would just mess with both of their dispositions and finally get them to act in, in a different way than they always did. So he set up two completely different rooms one for each of his, his, of his sons for Christmas. And for the whining and complaining son, he filled one room entirely with all of the toys that this son had ever asked for, ever hoped for, and a whole bunch more that he'd never even seen. It was wall-to-wall -wall toys. It was unbelievable. And so he gets up on Christmas morning and he invites that son into this particular room and he opens the door and for a second, the kid's eyes got wide open. Like, wow, that is crazy awesome. I cannot believe all the toys that are in here. And the dad felt so accomplished because he'd finally been able to get that son off of his, his standard way of thinking. But within just a couple of short minutes, that son started going, man, there's so many toys in here and I, I don't even know how to play with half of them and I don't have time to play with most of them. So in just a couple of minutes, he already reverted back to complaining, even though he had a room full of toys. So he's disappointed. Man, I thought I'd gotten that one worked out, but it didn't happen. So like, well, hopefully this will work out with son number two. So he goes to another room with son number two and he opens the door, and in that room, the father had arranged to have it filled completely, waist level high with horse manure. And the son looked at the, in the room, and he saw all this horse manure, and his jaw dropped, and he looked at his dad. He goes, is this it? And his dad, with a, a touch of accomplishment, said, yes, son, it is. And his son said, yes! With all this manure in here, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> there's an old term that I am familiar with and maybe some of you are as well. And it's very simple. It goes like this. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You ever heard that? 
If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Paul is trying to tell us as followers of Jesus Christ to have and develop peace with God, which gives us thanksgiving and joy, and we live in that peace that comes from it. Learn to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice even when your life starts looking like it's nothing more than a room full of horse manure. Because if we look hard enough, I promise we will find a pony in there somewhere. Right? Paul says, rejoice continually. Verse 5. Then he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord's at hand. And I put on the screen a strong gentleness. And I phrased it that way intentionally because gentle is a word that most of the ladies here would be totally okay with, but most guys are like, man, gentle ain't my thing. Not my thing. I don't really want people to see me as gentle. Because I'm a dude. And I think that there are two, two words in the scripture that are, are sort of similar and, and sort of uh, become uh, kryptonite to, to a lot of Christian men. One is gentleness, the other is meekness. <laughs> I don't want to be meek. Meek, man, last thing in the world, I want to be as meek. We equate that with milk toast, right? What self-respecting man wants to be milk toast? Nobody. But meekness and gentleness in the scripture are power under control. Power under control. Church, when there's power under control, it can do enormous good. And power, when it's not under control, can do enormous damage. Think, think about of a nuclear reactor, right? When, when that nuclear process is under control, it, it can deliver energy and power cities. Cities and cities and cities and cities. But you think about what happened in Chernobyl in Russia. When that power came out from under power, under control, and it was incredibly destructive. Nobody lives there still. Power under control is something God can do in us and through us to bring peace in our own spirit and accomplish his work in the world. And he says that he wants us to, to show that to all men, to everybody, inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church and outside the church. Now, it's kind of interesting. I've noticed this over time, is that there are people who will treat people inside the church really well, and then people treat people outside the church with total disdain, Right? I've also seen people who will treat people outside the church with kindness, lots of grace. And then when you start to look at people inside the church or brothers and sisters, man, where did the grace go? There's no grace whatsoever. Paul said, let your gentleness be seen to all men inside the church, outside the church. It fosters peace. And why? Because the Lord's at hand. Do you know when the Lord's coming back, y'all? No. Could it be today or tomorrow? Yeah, it could be. The Lord is at hand. We need to be busy about his work, not our own. So show gentleness so that the honor of the Lord will not be hurt and the work of the church can go forward. Then he says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious about nothing, but through prayer and with thanksgiving. This is Thanksgiving week. It's been a focus all month long for so many of us about, hey, we're getting ready to prepare ourselves for Thanksgiving. And Paul says, don't worry about 
anything but pray for everything with thanksgiving. Uh, church, let me just make this point. If you can worry, you can pray. If you can worry, you can pray. Now, there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm, I'm not very good at praying. Okay, that's fine. I'll take that. I realize that there are some people who struggle with prayer. But I can promise you everybody in here has had success somewhere in the course of your life at being all concerned and worried about how some particular situation might work out in your life. Everybody in here has experienced success in that, in that arena, right? We've all had something that we were really concerned about. Now, I'm not saying we solved it, but man, we worried really good. We were concerned really good. We spent a lot of time working that thing over and over and over in our mind. Well, how in the world is this going to work out? How in the world am I going to make this happen? How am I going to get through this thing? And so if you tell me that you can't pray very good, I'm just going to tell you, just think about how successful you've been at worrying and being concerned about certain things in your life and then flip that over, right? There's two sides to every coin. And church, prayer is the Jesus side of the coin of worry. Prayer is the Jesus side of the coin. So when we flip it, worry side up, that's the flesh part of us. And we've all figured out how to do that. We've all been successful at wringing our hands and, and being all upset and pondering over and over and over again how something's going to work out. Flip the thing over and now let's stop doing that and let's start taking that to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. And Paul said you can do it. And when you do it, you will start to experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. And peace means to be joined together, bound together, woven together. It means knowing that, that God is going to provide. He's going to give wisdom. He's going to give insight. He's going to give care. He, God is going to deal with it. And when everything looks like the wheels are falling off the bus and people look at you like, how in the world can you be dealing with this? That is the peace that passes all understanding. Because God binds that whole thing up and he says, I got it. I'm going to deal with it. And then he, when he says, well, uh, in, uh, in verse uh, seven, we'll guard your hearts and minds. That's another military term. I remember when I was in the army and you had guard duty, right? You're, I mean, your one, your one command during guard duty was to make sure that whatever you were guarding stayed protected. That's it. You got, you got one mission. Make sure that whatever you're guarding stays okay. How many of you find a lot of peace and a lot of comfort that when we go to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving for everything, that he says, he will guard your heart. Isn't that cool? I mean, like the idea that God is the one who'll do the guarding. I'm pretty sure that he doesn't mess up. I'm pretty sure that he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't fall asleep in the middle of the shift. And Paul says that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Verse 8 and 9, finally, brethren, whatever things are pure, true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul adds one other element, and that's positive thinking. Man, we get so messed up with stinking thinking. Don't we? And you know, you know what the cure to stinking thinking is? 
is thinking on the things that are lovely and are pure and of good report, the things that please God. Man, we fill our minds with lots of garbage. We fill our minds with lots of things that that may not be bad in and of themselves, but they're not lovely. They're not of good report. They're not something that brings us joy in realizing what God is doing and has done in our lives. And Paul says, think on these things. And if we do those things, if we stand fast, if we, if we pursue agreement and unity, we rejoice all the time continually. We ex- express a strong gentleness to all men, both inside and outside the church. We go to the Lord in prayer with everything, with thanksgiving. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. And we think on positive things, things that bring glory and honor to the Lord and peace to our soul. Then Paul says, you will experience the peace of God And that is a byproduct of exercising thanksgiving and joy. And then he wraps up with one last little bit of information, which I want to share as we finish this study in Philippians. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 19. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And not that I speak in regard to need. I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians, you know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that gratitude and thanksgiving can be expressed through giving and through receiving of gifts. He says there in verse 10 that he was glad that they flourished again. Glad they flourished again. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's really hard to start the uh, discipline of giving to the Lord. Sometimes when you're a new believer, it, it can be hard to, to get started but, but once you get started, you can, you can start well because God always said that he would supply our needs. God always said, try me in this. Give to me the first fruits. Try me in this. I will make sure that your needs are met even if it doesn't look like there's any way that it can possibly happen. I promise I will do it. Try me in this. And that can look really scary, but once you start doing it, you start seeing God supply Man, you can really start out well sometimes, but then something happens, right? Somebody loses a job. Finances come up. Expenses come up that you didn't expect. And now all of a sudden, well, even though God was making it all work, you start to kind of pull back from what you're giving to God because you got to meet these other needs. And when you do that, Do you know it gets really, really hard to get back on that horse and start giving to God again? Anybody ever noticed that? Anybody ever been through that? Man, when when, when Satan brings a trial, when he brings a challenge to your finances, even though God was making it work, you start trying to pay these other things and you just sort of forget. You forget that God says he has first claim on your first fruits. 
right? Well, I need this. No, you don't. Well, I got to pay for this. Maybe you do, but you got to pay God first. And Paul was saying, I am so glad that your giving has flourished again. I am certain every church in America, and this one too, has people that once upon a time you gave faithfully to the Lord, you experienced his blessing, but somewhere along the way something happened and you're no longer giving like the Lord commanded you to give and you're no longer experiencing the blessing that he promised as a result of your faithful giving. And I challenge you this morning, like Paul did, let it flourish again. Let it flourish again. Paul said that he's grateful, but he'd learned to be satisfied whether he had a little or whether he had a lot. That's, in fact, that's, that's what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned to live with a little, and I've learned to live with a lot, and I can do either one because God is what I care about. And if God has given me a lot, then I know that God is trusting me with a lot for a particular season of my life to do something generous for the cause of Christ through the lot that he has given me. If I have a little, then I know that God is trying to teach me something through the little that I have to trust him more, to lean on him more, to be more dependent even than I am already on him. I've learned to have a lot and I've learned to have a little. It doesn't matter to me because God is first. That's what Paul's saying. So he commends them for their offering, but he's like, I don't really need it because I'm okay if I have a lot, I'm okay if I have a little. But then he says something really, really important there. Verse 17 he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to whose account? What's the word there? Your account. Paul says, you know why I seek your gift? It's not for my own good. It's for your good. It's for your good. I don't need your gift is what Paul was saying. I can do without it. And guess what, church? God doesn't need your gift either. God can do without your gift. He really can. But you know who can't do without giving the gift? You and me. And that's why we're challenging you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back to the platform. That's why we're challenging you. Beginning next Sunday for the month of December, a thanks and Christmas offering. Church, how many of you would say this morning, raise your hand, how many would say this morning that you have more to be thankful for than you have a right to? Okay. We all have more to be thankful for than we have a right to. But God who had everything he could possibly ever want and need, gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest gift of all. The greatest reason to be thankful is the gift of salvation through Jesus. Church, we need God's blessing. We need his peace. We need to practice joy. And I encourage you this morning to remember that when we give generously to the work of God, God will always supply our needs. If you need peace and you're giving faithfully to the Lord and you're practicing gratitude and thanksgiving, 
God will give you the peace you need. If you need answers to prayer and you're giving generously to the work of the Lord and you're practicing thanksgiving and joy, God will give you the answers that you seek. If you need material blessing, this is not health and and welfare and, and wealth gospel. That's not what this is about. But if you have material needs, a need, God said he will, he will provide it. He will meet it. There's an old song that says, if he knows when a robin falls from his nest. If he grieves when he sees it die. How much more does he love you and I? churches we get ready to go to thanksgiving and then from thanksgiving to christmas it's time for us to celebrate who jesus is to live in a state of gratitude to trust him with our first fruits to enjoy the peace that passes understanding and as a unified church accomplish the cause of christ in southern illinois if you need jesus this morning as your savior Come, let's talk about it. You can change that today. You can go from death to life, from no peace to peace by humbling your heart and we'll pray and we'll get that worked out. If there's any other reason you need to pray as we get ready to go to Thanksgiving, come and pray at the altar. Father, as we give this message and this time to you, I pray that you're honored by every one of us here not only in our thoughts, Lord, but in our actions. In Jesus' name.